Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, guess what book of the Bible we're in today? Revelation. I'm just kidding. We are in Mark. This is week 22 in our 70-week series through the Gospel of Mark. It's going to take us the better part of two years to walk through Mark. And I love being able to teach and preach the Bible, and I love that you guys love it because every single week I get emails or messages from people, and they're like, Pastor Byron, thank you so much for teaching through the Gospel of Mark, and thank you so much for not doing it for two years straight. We actually decided we're going to break this sermon series up into five series spread across two years, each one about 10 weeks long. And here we are. We're at the last part of our second series through the gospel of Mark. We're calling it the simple gospel because here at Redemption, we really truly believe that the gospel is simple. Sometimes life is complicated. Amen. But the gospel, now the gospel is simple. It's all about Jesus. Who is Jesus? What Jesus says, what Jesus does, and how we are to live our life in life in light of what Jesus has done for us. And it's just really encouraging to be able to have you and to hear from you um, studying your Bible. I mean, I, I love it. Um, a lot of times people say things about, oh, people are reading their Bibles. People don't read their Bibles. But you know what? I'm really encouraged because I hear from you that you're reading the Bible. You're reading ahead in Mark's gospel. You're getting together in your community groups and you're talking about it and you're praying for one another and you're, you're loving and you're living living out what God's word says. And we here at Redemption, we truly believe that God's word causes us to grow. Amen? That God's word, it brings the growth. Whenever I was telling some friends that we we're going to be spending two years in Mark, they were like, really? Seriously? You're going to spend two years in Mark? I mean, how is that going to work? I mean, people already know all these stories and we can become so familiar with the stories over the life of Jesus to where we think, oh, I've heard that story. I've read that story. I I know what's going to happen. And we become so familiar that we actually miss out on what Jesus is doing. And it's through this study that we have seen over and over the love and the compassion and the care that Jesus has, his, his words and his works, his signs, his wonders, his miracles, and just how amazing Jesus is to us. And as we study through Mark's gospel, personally, we are growing. But not only personally are we growing, but numerically we are growing as well. Other people said, you're going to teach through Mark for two years. You're going to preach one hour sermons through one book for two years. Nobody's going to come back to your church. You're going to drive them all the way. And so I said, that sounds like a challenge. Let's see what's going to happen. And since we've started to Mark, I'm excited to announce that our church has grown by 60%. 60% every single week. People keep showing up. People keep meeting Jesus. People keep getting saved. That our community groups are packed and full. That people are begging me to be baptized. You've given over $70,000 in the last you know, four months. We had 40 people go through Next Steps. We had 30 people join the serve team. We fasted for 40 days. And in two weeks, we're going to be moving into a brand new building where I truly wholeheartedly believe that Jesus is going to keep growing his church. Because here's the deal. God's word brings the growth. We here at Redemption, we believe that if you lift Jesus up, he's going to draw all men unto himself. That the Holy Spirit wrote the book. He loves the book and he loves to bless churches that love to preach the book. Anytime this book is open, God's word is preached. You can count on this, that God's word will always bring the growth. Amen. 
And as our church, it continues to grow personally, spiritually, numerically, as our church continues to grow, me and some of our elders and leaders, I feel like for the very first time in the history of our church, in the two years since we launched it, that we finally have clarity and vision around the type of church that Jesus has called us to be, why he's planted us here in the heart of the city, why he keeps sending people to our church. I'm listening to your stories. I'm hearing what God is doing in your life. We're raising up new leaders. God's giving us new opportunities. We're fixing to make this move. And I feel like for the very first time in the two years as a church, we're finally having some clarity behind the vision. And our heart, my hope, my goal, my prayer is that Redemption Church would be a church for everybody because Jesus is for everybody. That we would be a church in the heart of the city. That we exist to see a gospel-centered movement in the heart of the city to where every man, woman, and child experiences life change through Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've gone through, no matter what other people have said about you, whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Latino, Asian, Republican, Democrat, skinny jean, cargo shorts, it doesn't matter who you are. Redemption is a place that anyone and everyone can experience life change through Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to see today in Mark chapter 5. If you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus is for everyone. And we're going to see life change happen in three people, a man, a woman, and a child, a little girl. And so if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 5, and the sermon title is Jesus is for Everyone, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again, he got into the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So here we go. This is the life of Jesus. The great crowds, they show up again. Everywhere Jesus goes, great crowds, they, they follow, and they, they want to see what it is that Jesus is going to say and what it is that Jesus is going to do. Jesus' life is a very busy life, that he is stressed and he is tired, he is exhausted and people are pushing and pulling on him from every single direction. And in Mark chapter four, it really sets up what's happening today in Mark chapter five. In Mark chapter four, what we noticed is that, that Jesus, he gets up in the morning, he goes by the sea, he preaches a sermon, a 15 hour sermon. Okay, get that 15 hours. Some of you are like one hour, Byron, you need to wrap it up. Could you imagine a 15 hour sermon? And you're like, Byron, you're not Jesus. I'd sit for that. So Jesus preaches a 15 hour sermon. He's tired. He, he has no more energy. His life is depleted out of him. He, he wants to go home. He wants to take a day off. He wants to get a nap. He wants to get some sleep. He just wants to get away from everybody. So he tells his disciples, he says, okay, boys, let's pull up anchor. Let's hop in the boat. Let's go across to the other side. It's the middle of the night. They're in the middle of the sea. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in the middle of a storm that the waves begin to crash. The winds begin to blow, that the storm is raging. They're fearful. They're afraid because they think that they are about to die. The disciples, they're panicked and they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, get up. Jesus, wake up. Jesus, you got to do something. And Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And he's like, oh, really? Okay. Jesus stands up and he says, peace be still. And with just a word, creation obeys him. The storm is silent. The winds, they cease. And Jesus, he calms the storm. And then he's got to calm down his disciples for a little bit. And then after the storm is over, a couple hours later, he steps out on the shores on the other side in the country of the Gerasenes. And all of a sudden, he's met by a man possessed with 6,000 demons. Okay, how's that for your day off? You get approached by a man with 6,000 demons screaming at you. And so 
Jesus, he casts out the demons into the pigs. The pigs jump off of the cliff. Everyone in the city hears Jesus is showing up. Jesus is ruining everything. We got to get him out of here. So he casts out the demons and then the city casts out Jesus. That's Jesus's day. And Mark's gospel is a brilliant book, and Mark is a brilliant writer because he puts all of these together in one section of scripture because it really highlights and indicates the power of Jesus. So the first week we saw that Jesus has power over destruction, that when the storms of life are coming, when the waves are coming, when everything's falling apart, at just a word, creation obeys him. And Jesus, he has power over destruction. And then the next week we saw that Jesus, he has power over demons, that he demonstrates and exercises his authority over Satan and darkness and demons. So we've seen his power over destruction in your life. We've seen his power over the darkness that wants to attack your life. And this week we're gonna see his power over disease and even death. Jesus has power over disease and death. And so Jesus gets out of the boat. He comes from the other side. And guess who's waiting there to meet him? It's the crowd. The crowd, they show up again. Jesus goes across. They're like, oh, bummer. Jesus is leaving. Everybody, let's just go home and kick rocks. Somebody's waiting on the shore. Nope, wait, Jesus is coming back, right? I see him. He's coming. Everybody, everybody get back here. Everybody assume your positions, right? And then the massive crowd, they form, and they're waiting for Jesus. As soon as he gets off the boat, that's where they're at. I need you to understand this, that this is Jesus's life. That everywhere Jesus goes, people are shoving and following and they're trying to get around him because they want to see what it is that Jesus is going to do, what it is that Jesus is going to say. Is he going to do a miracle? Is he going to heal somebody? Is he going to cast out a demon? Is he going to preach a sermon? Everybody wants to see and be with Jesus. And this is important for us to be able to understand because what Mark is showing us here is that this is historical. This is factual. This is evidential. See, our understanding of Jesus is that he was some lonely rabbi He was some wandering peasant that he just hung out with 12 dudes who didn't have jobs and they sat under a tree. He wore a Mr. Rogers sweatshirt, quoted Zig Ziglar and drank chamomile tea. We think, oh, that's who Jesus was. Jesus, he was just this, you know, loner that nobody really understood, but that's not true. That everywhere Jesus went, he would amass crowds of upwards of 5,000 people. And everywhere he goes, he's loving and serving and helping and caring for as many people as possible. And it's important for us to remember this because we live in a day and age where people would say that Jesus, he never existed. Jesus, he didn't really do the things that he said he did. That Jesus, he never claimed to be God. That Jesus, mm, he's not even a real person. But that's not true. What we see here is that this is factual historical evidence that people knew who he was and everywhere he he goes, great crowd, sometimes 5,000 people would show up because Jesus is always loving, serving, helping everyone that he runs into. And we're going to see this play out today in a powerful and personal way in the life of a man, a woman, and a child, a little girl. So the story continues. First, we'll meet the man. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. There's a great crowd. And then in the middle of the crowd comes a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Now, the synagogue is the old covenant equivalent of the local church. So every Sabbath, all of the people, they would gather together in the synagogue to worship and to pray and to read their Bibles and to practice community and to practice hospitality. So the synagogue is the old covenant equivalent of the church. And here it says that Jairus, he is a ruler of the synagogue. So you can think of Jairus kind of like a pastor. And so Jesus' interaction 
interactions with the religious leaders thus far, they have not gone very well. If you can just think back to um, all the stories we've read in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus and the religious leaders, they don't really get along because Jesus shows up in Mark chapter one, he preaches, and then everybody is embarrassed that the scribes and the Sadducees, they're embarrassed because Jesus has authority whenever they preach, whenever he preaches. And then a, a guy gets lowered from a roof and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is this man who claims to forgive sins? This is blasphemy. So they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. They don't like his disciples because they don't fast the way that they're supposed to. They don't follow the rules and regulations and the man-made traditions that they're supposed to. And then on another occasion, the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they accuse Jesus not only of blasphemy, but also of being accused by Satan himself. I mean, that is a very big deal. Jesus and the religious leaders, they don't get along very well. And here we see that Jairus, he is a ruler over the synagogue. Okay, so he's a very big deal. In that day, he would be respected because, oh, he's the pastor. Everybody look at Jairus. He's a big deal. He'd be wealthy because, well, religion was business back then, and business was good. He's respected. He's wealthy. He's prominent. He's got a position of authority. He's got a position of, uh, of power and privilege in that society because he is the religious leader. He is the ruler over the synagogue. And here what we see is that this man, Jairus, he comes and he runs to Jesus. And Mark, he never mentions somebody by name, but on this occasion, Mark, he is specifically mentioning Jairus by name. Why would he mention Jairus by name? Because I think that he wants us to understand how big of a deal that this is, that this man, this ruler over the synagogue, he comes and he goes and he wants to see Jesus. This is a very big deal because this is a very important man. And also Jairus, he's probably had interactions with Jesus before. That whenever Jesus preached in the synagogue, that could have been Jairus' synagogue. Whenever the scribes come down from Jerusalem and accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan, Jairus might have been the one who made that phone call. When the great crowds show up to criticize and complain about Jesus, to wait for him to mess up and make a mistake and to accuse him of sin, Jairus very well might have been in that crowd on that day. But today, Jairus is in a different crowd on a different day for a very different reason. And today, Jairus is a desperate man. And he runs to Jesus. And here's what the story says. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. So he sees Jesus in the middle of the crowd. He runs to him, falls down at his feet. This is a place of reverence. This is a place of worship. This is honor that he is, that he is worshiping Jesus in this moment. He falls down right in front of Jesus. He is worshiping him. And then he runs to him. Just so you know, men don't like to run. Okay, unless something's chasing them or, and they're trying to get to the fridge before the two-minute warning. Other than that, men, we don't like to run. Especially in this day, prominent, wealthy men like Jairus definitely don't run because that shows that they are desperate. And that's exactly where we meet Jairus at, that he is desperate. Why? Because his little girl is about to die. Verse 23, and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she might be made well and live. His little daughter is at the point of death. That his little girl is dying. As I was reading and studying for this week, I, I really began to identify with Jairus. Because Jairus, he's a pastor, and I'm a pastor, and Jairus is a dad, and I'm a dad, and Jairus has a, a little girl, and I have a 
little girl. And as I was reading this, I really began to put myself in Jairus' position and think, what would I do? How would I react? How would I respond if I was, if I was Jairus? Okay, for those of you who are parents, you understand this, that you would do anything for your kids, that you love them and you want the world for them. You want to see them grow up. You want to see them be healthy. You want to see them be happy. You want them to be whole and well. You want them to grow up and make a difference. You want them to be able to live their life. And you would do anything for your children. And so parents, I need you to connect with this. I need you to understand this, how much you love your children. And for Jairus, his little girl was his entire world. That he would do anything for his little girl. And in Luke's gospel, it tells us that this was his only daughter. And we don't know why he only had one child, because in that day, um, large families were very common. And so we're not sure why he only had one. Maybe it was miscarriage. Maybe it was infertility. Maybe this little girl was a miracle. It was a gift from God. And now he finds himself in a position where his little girl is dying. And all we know is that for this man, his daughter was his entire world. How many of you are dads? Statistically in our church, most of us are young adults in our 20s, singles, or single moms. We don't have a lot of dads in our church, but the dads that we do have, they're good dads. That they are good dads who love their kids and love Jesus and want for their kiddos to grow up and love Jesus. I praise God every single week for good dads. One of my greatest joys is to watch a dad with their kids, you know, go and take communion or pray over to the side or, or to see them come in the morning. I pray that our church is filled with good dads. I'm, I'm a dad. Okay, and as I was reading this, I really just began to think a lot about my little girl. I, I'm a dad of a little girl. Her name is Esther's son. She's going to be two on Thursday. She's super cute. She's totally adorable. And she is really big into dinosaurs. So we call her Esther Source. She's my little Esther Source. And she is absolutely amazing. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. She is my entire world. And I remember whenever um, Ashley was pregnant, people were like, do you want to have a boy or a girl? I was like, you know what? One or the other. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to be happy anyway. I got a 50-50 shot. But, you know, as I was praying about it and thinking about it, Ashley really wanted to have a baby boy, but I really wanted to have a little girl. I wanted to have a little girl because I thought that if I had a boy first, that I would be too hard on him. I'd expect too much and move too fast. And I wanted to have a little girl so that way she could steal my heart and she could soften me up a little bit. And that is exactly what Esther has done. And whenever we were at the, the doctor going to see her ultrasound, um, and, and the doctor said, well, do you want to know what you're having? And I was like, yeah, well, how can you tell? She held up the ultrasound and she said, well, what you're looking for is either a turtle or a hamburger. And I thought, I don't really get it. And then she explained it to me. And I was like, oh, gotcha. So, so what are we having? And she says, you're having a hamburger. And I thought, oh, I love hamburgers. And I love this little girl. Dads, you understand this, right? That no matter what happens, no matter how old your little girl is, she's always going to be your little girl. That's the same thing that we see here with Jairus because his daughter later in the book, um, in the story, is going to tell us that she's 12 years old. Okay, in that day, she would have been old enough to become a woman, that she would be able to get married, she'd be able to have kids, she'd be able to have a family. But here he says that she's still his little daughter because no matter how old a girl is, she's always going to be her father's little girl. And I just love being a dad. It's the best. 
And for those of you young men who are scared of commitment and you're worried about getting married and starting a family and having kids because you didn't have a dad to show you how it looks, I want you to know this, that you have a good father in heaven who loves you. And if you just learn to model after him, you're going to be a good dad to your kids and you don't have anything to worry about. Being a father is absolutely the best. Esther, she is so amazing. She loves to cuddle. She loves to brush my beard. She loves to walk around in mommy's shoes. She loves to talk. I mean, she started talking at a very early age. She loves, to, she loves to read, so we read books to her. She loves to read her Bible. We have a Bible sitting on our, our, our dining room table, and every single day she's like, Daddy's Bible, Daddy's Bible, Daddy's Bible. I mean, when I walk home, as soon as I get home, I open the door, and Esther, she's right there, and she says, Daddy, 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 and then she runs up, and she grabs my leg, and she says, Down, 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 which really means up. She gets him confused, and so I, I pick her up in my arms, and I swing her around, and I walk over to Ashley, and I say, mama gets the first kiss, and I give Ashley a kiss, and then she says, cuddle, cuddle on the couch. And so for the first 30 minutes when I get home, I'm just cuddling on the couch with Esther, and I'm just hugging her and loving her, and I'm just spending time with her because she's my little girl. She loves to pray over, over dinner every single night. Okay, we say, Esther, do you want to pray? And she says, yes, and then she folds her hands, and we pray. And the other day, my wife, she was sick, and so in the morning, I laid hands on my wife, and I began to pray for her. I prayed for healing over her. And I look over and say, Esther, do you want to pray for mommy? And she says, yes. And as we're praying, she puts her hands on her mom, and we began to pray over her. And every single night, we pray over our little girl, and we pray for three things. Lord, make her bold. Lord, let her be a worshiper. And Father, let her be filled with the Holy Spirit at a very young age. And it's beautiful because she's only two years old. But in the morning, when we're walking down the hallway to go wake her up, we can hear her singing. And I believe that God, even though she's only two years old, is already answering those prayers. Being a dad is the best. Being a father is amazing. I pray that our church be filled with good dads who love Jesus and love their kids. And as I was reading this this week, I really began to think about Esther and put myself in Jairus' position, that his daughter is dying. He's not going to get to see her grow up. He's not going to see her get to get married. He's not going to get to walk her down the aisle. He's not going to get to see her graduate college or start her own family. All of his hopes and all of his dreams for his daughter are dying. Parents, I need you to feel this. I need you to connect with this. I need you to emotionally enter into the story. What would you do if you were Jairus? This man, he would do anything for his little girl. And that even means him running to Jesus, for him going to Jesus. Now, at this moment, he would risk everything. He's been to the doctors, and they can't help. He's seen the religious leaders. They prayed over, and that can't help. He's probably fasted. He's probably prayed. He's done everything. The only thing left for Jairus to do is for him him to go to Jesus, but he knows in order for him to run to Jesus, he has to risk everything, that he has to risk his reputation, he has to risk his wealth, he has to risk his position, he has to risk the prominence of him being a religious leader, because he's doing this in front of everybody, that there is a crowd, the crowd is watching, there are people, the people are watching, that the religious leaders, they're watching and saying, this is Jairus, he's one of us, what is he doing turning to Jesus, and in the middle of all of this, Jairus, he would do anything 
anything for his daughter. He would risk everything for his daughter. And he runs to and he bows down in front of Jesus and says, Jesus, I know that you can do it. I know that you can heal her. I've seen you do it before. I know that you can do it again. You can do a miracle. You got to come back to my house. Lord Jesus, help me and heal my daughter. That's where Jairus is at. And some of you, that's where you're at today. That you're in a situation where you're desperate and you're hopeless and there's nothing you can do and the only hope for your life is that Jesus shows up. That's the man. Well, the story, it continues. And he went with him. Jesus says, okay, I'll go. You need me? I'll show up. Where are we going? Back to Jairus' house. And he went with them, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. People were like, oh, yeah, we got to see this, right? The ruler of the synagogue, right, comes to Jesus, bows down in front of him. Jesus is going back to his house to heal his little girl who's dying and on her deathbed. We got to see this. This is going to be pretty interesting. And so the great crowd, maybe 5,000 people, right? They're going back to Jairus' house. Can you just imagine this? Like you're pulling into your neighborhood and all of a sudden you just see a big crowd of people walking over to your neighbor's house. You're like, okay, what is going on? This is a very big deal. And the great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And in verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is the woman with the issue of blood. Medically, most commentators would say that she has a uterine hemorrhage and that she has been bleeding here for 12 years. And she has suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had, but was no better. Rather, she, got, she grew worse. For 12 years, this woman, she has suffered. That she has tried everything. That she's been to the doctors and the doctors couldn't help. She spent all of her time and money and energy. She's exhausted all of her resources, but nothing made her any better. In fact, it only made her worse. She probably didn't try alternative treatments and, and, and you know, other medicinal values and properties to be able to bring about healing, but none of those things worked. Instead, she only got worse. In the Talmud, a first century Jewish book, they, they would have home remedies for issues of blood or discharge of blood like this woman experienced. And there were some crazy things. But remember, she's tried the doctors. It didn't work. She went to the religious leaders. It didn't work. She spent all of her money. It didn't work. There's only hope for her is to try these other remedies. And they too didn't work. I mean, some of them are ridiculous. Like one of them is that you have to wear a peacock feather and stand in the middle of the street. And then somebody comes up behind you and scares you. And then maybe that's going to work. And that didn't work. Another one is that she would have to wear a necklace filled with corn from the dung of a white donkey. And she would have to wear that. And and that would work, but it didn't work. Another one was that you would take three onions from Persia, you would boil them in wine, and then you would drink them. And maybe that would work. And if that doesn't work, the last hope is to take a silver coin, insert it in the vagina, and hopefully it causes it to dry up. I mean, crazy, ridiculous things. And nothing works. But when you're desperate, you're desperate. And you would do anything. And this woman, she is desperate. Because for 12 years, she suffered in agonizing pain, in excruciating pain, and in grief, and she has suffered. But not only has she suffered, but she suffers alone. That she has become an outcast in their society. Because in the book of Leviticus, a woman with this condition, she would be declared unclean, ceremonially unclean. That she was not allowed to enter into public. She was not allowed to have friends or have family. She was not allowed to go to church. She was not allowed to have her sins forgiven. She was not allowed to worship or to pray or to read her Bible or to be in community. She was not allowed to practice the faith that she has endured. She was not allowed because she was an outcast. She was the 
lowest of the low. She was on the same level as a leper, that nobody loved her, that nobody knew her, that nobody knew her by her name. She spends her entire life in isolation, her entire life in shame, her entire life, she is alone. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't have a family. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a daughter. She doesn't have children. She doesn't have a church. She doesn't have a community group. She lives alone. She eats alone. She worships alone. She spends her t- entire life in isolation, in loneliness, and she is totally alone. That's who this woman is. And this woman is the exact opposite of Jairus. If you think about it, Jairus, he's respected. This woman, she's disrespected. Jairus is wealthy. This woman is poor. Jairus, he is loved. This woman is unloved. Jairus is a ruler over the synagogue. This woman, she's not even allowed in church. Jairus has a daughter who's 12 years old. This woman has a disease that she's endured for 12 years. As long as Jairus has enjoyed his little girl, this woman has endured pain and loneliness and suffering and shame. Jairus and the woman are opposites. The man and the woman, they're opposites. But today they're paths cross at the feet of Jesus. And in this moment, we see that no matter how different they are, the answer is still the same because Jesus is for everyone. And the story, it continues. That she had heard the reports about Jesus, even though this woman spent her entire life in isolation, she still heard about who Jesus was. And I just think that's amazing that even those who are destitute and lonely and alone, that they can have hope because of who Jesus is, that reports had gone out about Jesus, and this woman hears, Jesus has showed up in my town. I know what he has done for others, and I believe that he can do it for me. I've heard what he has done for others, and I can believe that he can do it for me. I gotta get to Jesus. I need to get to Jesus, because if I meet Jesus, then everything is going to change. And it says that, She had heard the reports about Jesus and coming up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, that's Mark's favorite word. He's going to use it four times in this story, 40 times throughout the gospel of Mark. Immediately, the flow of blood, it dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She had gone to all the doctors, but they couldn't help. For 12 years, she spent all of her money, all of her time, all of her resources, all of her energy. She has tried everything, but nothing she tried could ever make it any better. In fact, everything that she did, it only made it worse. And for 12 years, she has suffered, but in just one minute, in just one moment, reaching out and grabbing a hold of the garment of Jesus, immediately this woman, she is healed. That her disease is gone. That her suffering is gone just by reaching out to Jesus. And in that moment, immediately, Jesus, he heals her. I need you to get this. That there is no exertion of energy on Jesus' part to accomplish this miracle. That Jesus, he didn't even try. Jesus, he didn't even do anything. That this woman reached out to him. That there is no magic trick on Jesus' part. Right? He didn't roll up his sleeves and say abracadabra and quote a magic word. Jesus, he didn't do that. Jesus didn't break a sweat. 
Right? Jesus, it doesn't take him a week. It doesn't take him an hour. It doesn't even take him a minute. Immediately, the power of Jesus is unleashed in this woman's life, and her life is changed forever. How? It's because of the power of Jesus, that Jesus, he is powerful over disease. His power. Here's what it tells us next. Verse 30, in perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, that word power there is the same word that we use for dynamite, that the power of Jesus is dynamic. When the power of Jesus is unleashed in your life, it's like an explosion, that things begin to happen, that things begin to change. It's the same word here for Jesus' power that he tells his disciples, you wait until power from on high. It's the Holy Spirit. Spirit's power flowing through Jesus, unleashed in your life, that brings the life change, that his power has gone out from him. And he turns around and he said, who touched my garments? Okay, so Jesus, he's in a large crowd, right? Remember, maybe 5,000 people on the way to Jairus' house. And the people are pushing and shoving and they're pulling all around Jesus. They're enthronged around Jesus. And his personal space is totally invaded. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? Who touched my garments? Who touched my clothes? See, I think that this is actually a rhetorical question. I think that Jesus, he understands what it was that just happened because he felt his power flow through him. He knew that somebody just got healed, that somebody's life just got changed, that something happened. And I believe that Jesus knew it was for this woman and that he was giving her an opportunity to respond that he was giving her an opportunity to put her faith into practice, to take her faith public in front of the crowd and to publicly display in front of God and everybody what just happened to her. I believe that Jesus was giving this woman this opportunity for her to respond. Now, the disciples, they don't get this, okay? Because everyone's in the crowd and the disciples, they're still thinking about the man, right? We gotta get back to Jairus' house. But in this moment, Jesus is not thinking about the man. Jesus here is thinking about the woman, And I just need you to see this, especially for you ladies, that Jesus has a particular value for women, that he loves you, that he'll take time just for you, and that in this moment, he's thinking for you, that he's exclusively for you, and that he will do something just for you. The value and the dignity and the worth and the honor that our Lord Jesus gives to women is beautiful. So while the disciples are thinking about the man, in this moment, Jesus, he's thinking about this woman. And he says, who touched me? And then the disciples, they speak, okay? I need you to read this with a little bit of sarcasm, okay? When you're you're reading through Mark's gospel, you'll get the picture that a lot of Jesus' ministry happens in spite of the disciples, not really because of them, right? And, And so the disciples, they have this really wonderful supernatural gift to fill silence with awkwardness. That's exactly what they do. And so Jesus, he asks this rhetorical question, and then Peter, the leader of the disciples, he stands up and he speaks, okay? And he's going to say something, and um, I need you to read it with a little bit of sarcasm. And so here's what it says. 
Verse 31, you see this large crowd pressing around you? It's like, uh, duh, Jesus, somebody touched you. I know it's awkward, but that's what happens when large crowds of people show up. That all this pushing and shoving, that's because of all of these people. Look around. Don't you see them? And Jesus is like, thank you so much, Captain Obvious. Right? Your insightful details are just so tremendous, Peter. I don't know what I would do without you. I realize now people touch me because I'm in a large crowd. Okay, I need you to read it with a little bit of sarcasm because that's kind of the way that Jesus is saying it. But Jesus notices that something is different. Something has changed in verse 32. And he looked around to see who it was that had touched him. But the woman, knowing what happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In just a moment, this woman's life was changed. For 12 years, she was considered unclean, unworthy, unwelcomed, unaccepted, that she has suffered alone, that she has suffered in isolation, that she's been filled with grief, she's been filled with shame, and she's tried everything, but nothing she did could make it any better. In fact, it has only ever made it worse. For 12 years, this woman has suffered, but in one moment, one minute, one instant, immediately, everything in her life, it was changed. Just think about how different this woman's life would be. That now, she can go to church. And now she can worship the Lord. And now she can read her Bible. And now she could practice community. And now she could get married and she could have kids. She could go to work. She could get a job. Her entire life is different. Her entire life is changed. That the life-changing power from Jesus has been unleashed into this woman's life. And everything is different and everything has changed. And you can just imagine her, that she is laughing and that she is smiling and that she is dancing and that she is weeping with joy because her life Life has been changed. But then Jesus calls her out publicly. And now she's filled with fear. And now she's filled with worry because as someone who is unclean, she's not allowed to be in that crowd. And so everybody knows that this woman is unclean. And for them, if they would identify this woman as being unclean, they could have arrested her. They could have put her on trial. They could have stoned her in public. They could have even killed this woman out of fear that they too would have been made unclean. And then Jesus, he looks down at her and he calls her out publicly and she comes filled with fear and worry at the feet of Jesus. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't shame her. Instead, Jesus removes all of her shame. That not only does Jesus end her suffering, but Jesus also ends her shame because by publicly showing the crowd and everybody what Jesus just does is he declares this woman as clean. See, in Leviticus, if you wanted to be declared clean, you would have to go before a high priest, and the high priest would bless you and declare you as cleansed. Jesus is this woman's great high priest, and publicly in front of God and everybody, not only does he remove her suffering, but he also removes her shame, and he publicly reinstates her back into society, that this woman has a brand new life, all because of Jesus. And here's what's so beautiful. Here's what's so amazing is that this woman, she comes to Jesus unclean. And when she touches Jesus, she doesn't make Jesus unclean. Instead, Jesus makes her clean. That Jesus is pure. Jesus is perfect. Jesus is true. Jesus is clean. And when you reach out 
and you touch Jesus, you don't make him unclean. Instead, he cleanses you. This is the gospel. This is the great exchange. That we come to Jesus just as we are with our hopelessness and with our brokenness and with our grief and with our pain and with our shame. We come to Jesus and we don't clean up to come to Jesus. Instead, we come to Jesus just as we are. And as we reach out and we stretch out in faith, Jesus, he cleanses us. And some of you, you come here today and you feel just like this woman, that God could never love you, that God could never forgive you, that God would never accept you, that you would never be welcome because you're dirty and you're defiled and that you are unclean after all the things you said, after all the things you've done. And for years, you've experienced suffering and loneliness and isolation, that you've been held prisoner to all of your grief and to all of your shame. But you know that if you can just get to Jesus, if you can just stretch out in faith and lay a hold of the garments of Jesus, if you can push your way through that crowd and you come here today and you're at church and you're not sure why you're here because you think if people knew who I really was, if people saw me for who I truly was. If people really got to know me, then I would be unwelcomed. I would be unworthy. I would be unaccepted. But I'm telling you today that in faith, if you just stretch out to Jesus, if you are desperate enough for Jesus, if you come to Jesus and you surrender your life and you fall down before him, the life-changing power of Jesus will be unleashed and you will be set free. And this is what's so beautiful about our Jesus. This woman, she came to Jesus and she was hoping just for a miracle. But instead she got so much more. That not only did she get a healing, but she also got salvation. Jesus here refers to her as daughter. This is the only person in all of the Bible that the Lord Jesus calls a daughter. Why? Because in this moment, her faith has made her well. Friends, we are saved by faith. That her faith has made her well. And in the Greek, that word healed, it has two meanings. It's sozo, and it means healing, but it also means salvation. That in this moment, she was healed internally and externally. That she was healed physically and spiritually. That she was healed from the inside out. She has been reconciled into a loving relationship with the Father where her sin had been separated from her, where she was unworthy, unwelcome, where she was unclean. As soon as she touches Jesus, the life-changing love pours over her and she is declared clean and she is declared righteous and she has right standing before God as his daughter. Friends, you have standing with God as a daughter. You have standing with God as a son, that you are a child of God, that your sin has been removed, that your shame has been removed, that your suffering has been removed, and that your life has been restored. This is a beautiful picture of salvation. And this is what Jesus wants to do in our lives. And it says that she told him the whole truth. Don't you just love that? That in the middle of this crowd, this woman, she's able to pour her heart out to Jesus. And Jesus loves her. And Jesus listens to her. And Jesus cares for her. That Jesus is never too busy for you. That he will always take time and make time to listen to you as you pour your heart out to him.
And this woman tells him the whole truth. How long do you think it takes somebody to tell the whole truth? Okay, probably it takes a little while. What do you think Jairus is thinking right now? Jairus is like, <clears throat> hey, Jesus, what about me? Right? Hey, lady, good for you. Glad to, you got your healing. But what about my daughter? What about my little girl? Because if you remember, I'm the point of this story. Right? It's about me. Come on, Jesus, you need to hurry up. You need to pick it up. Come on, Jesus. Chop, chop, we got to go. We got to get back to my house. My daughter, she's on her deathbed. My daughter is dying. Don't let this woman get in your way. Come on, Jesus, we got to go. Could you just imagine how frustrated and upset and how angry that Jairus might have been at this time? Okay, Jesus, quit wasting your time. Come on, let's get back to her house. So what happens next? She told him the whole truth, and while speaking with them, there came the ruler from the house, someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So Jesus is still talking to this woman, and as he's talking to this woman who just got healed, one of the leaders of his home, one of his servants, comes right up to him and says, Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother with Jesus anymore. This man has no tact. Right, this man comes right up to him and says, your daughter's dead. Leave Jesus alone. Quit bothering with Jesus. We told you this Jesus stuff wasn't going to work. We told you that he didn't really care. We told you he wasn't going to come. We told him that you were wasting your time going to find Jesus because now your daughter is dead. Just leave Jesus alone. Parents, I need you to feel this. I can't even think about somebody telling me that my little girl, my beautiful little girl, my baby girl is dead. And I know that for some in this room, you've had this conversation before. That it's not hard for you to imagine this because you've experienced this. That we have people in our church who have lost sons and have lost their daughters. We've had people in our church who have had this conversation. You've gotten this phone call and you've had to bury your own kids. I can't imagine the, the pain and, and the grief that you would experience in that moment and the confusion and the anger that you would feel in that moment. To know that your child is gone. I can't even imagine for Esther. I need you to feel this. I need emotionally for you to feel this because sometimes we read the Bible and it's just words on a page and it doesn't actually get to our heart and we forget that these are real stories with real people who encountered a real Jesus. His daughter is dead. Jesus, why did you wait? Jesus, why did you take so long? Jesus, why didn't you do what you said you were going to do? If you said you were going to do it, why didn't you show up? Why did you let this woman get in your way? My daughter might still be here. God, if you did not delay, Jesus, this could be your fault. How many of you ever feel like that? That God said he was going to do something and it didn't look like he did it. And that you were trusting and you were hoping and you were believing that God was going to move and he never showed up. I just really want to encourage you today as I was reading this that God's delays are not always God's denials. 
that just because you don't see God moving, it doesn't mean that God's not moving. Just because you don't see God working, it doesn't mean that God's not working. Just because you don't understand what God is doing, it doesn't mean that God's not doing anything. God's delays are not God's denials. That Jesus is working. Jesus is moving. And Jesus, he has a plan the whole time because he overheard what it was that they said. He ignored it. And he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear Why? Because Jesus has a plan. Do not fear, only believe. Jesus knew what he was doing all along. Jesus, he ignored the words of death that this servant spoke over this little girl. Instead, he chose to speak words of life that he spoke encouragement into Jairus. He says, Jairus, you risked everything to get to me. I'm gonna do something. Jairus, you have given up everything to come and find me. I am going to continue with you. Jairus, I need you to believe. Jairus, do not have fear. Jairus, I am working in your life. Jairus, I am up to something. Just trust in me. Keep believing in me. Keep hoping in me. Keep moving forward. Keep persevering. Do not fear Jairus. Instead, only believe that Jesus, he has a plan, and he allowed no one to enter into that room. He says, all of you, get out. I can't stand your unbelief. I can't stand your unfaith, because I'm about to do something amazing. And he says everyone to leave except for Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. And they came into the house of the rulers of the synagogue, and they saw the commotion, the people wailing loudly. And when he entered into that room, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? Right, the child is not dead, she is only sleeping, and they laughed at him. See, the house is packed, it's filled with the little girl, it's filled with their family, it's filled with probably her friends. I mean, 10, 12, 14-year-old preteens gathered in that room. This could be their first touch of death. This could be their first experience with death. And it's their best friend and they're weeping and they're crying and the family is all there and the whole city is outside the door. And then Jairus walks in the room and what does Jairus see? His wife bending over, holding and hugging the lifeless body of this little girl. I mean, I I can't go there to see Ashley holding Esther to know that your daughter has died. I think one of the things that breaks my heart most about this story is that this little girl didn't have her daddy there as she breathed her last breath. Could you imagine how scared this little girl must have been that she's on her deathbed and she's dying and her dad's not there? And it's not because Jairus doesn't love her, it's because he does love her and he's really willing to do anything. But as she's scared and as she's dying, her Her father's not there by her side. She doesn't get to look into his eyes and Jairus doesn't get to kiss her forehead and doesn't get to say how much I love you and how much I'm gonna miss you and baby girl, it's gonna be okay and sweetheart, it's gonna be okay. And he doesn't get to bless her and pray over her. Could you imagine how scared this little girl must be? Men, your daughters need you. But more importantly, they need you to get Jesus to them. Because Jesus shows up. And it says, he put them all outside the house. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with them and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he says, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and she began walking for she was 12 years of age. Jesus, he did it. 
Jesus. He did it. He healed her. But he more than healed her. He raised her back from the dead. That their little girl was gone. And Jesus brought her back. And it says that they were immediately overcome with an amazement. That Jesus, you gave us back our daughter. That Jesus, you have brought her back to life. That Jesus, you have done it. That Jesus, you have healed her. That Jesus, you have showed up. That Jesus, you have changed everything in our life. Our life is never going to be the same. You have given us back our little girl. Jesus, you are amazing. Jesus, you are wonderful. Jesus, you are powerful. And friends, I need you to understand this, that Jesus, he is amazing, and that Jesus, he is wonderful, and that Jesus, he is powerful. And he strictly ordered them that they should tell no one. And he said to her, give her something to eat. God's delays are not God's denials. That God knew what he was doing. See, in the past few weeks, we've seen Jesus' power over destruction. That in the storms of life, Jesus with just a word, creation obeys him. And that we do not have to fear in the storms, but we only have faith because he has power over destruction. And then we saw that the works of the enemy in your life, that Jesus, he has power over darkness. He has power over demons. We saw in this story that Jesus, he even has power over sickness and in disease. But here we see that Jesus has so much more power, that he demonstrates something far more powerful, something that we have never seen, that not only does Jesus have power over destruction and power over darkness and power over disease, but he even has power over death, that Jesus beats death. Jesus beats death. Jesus beats death. And he did it in the life of this little girl. And he did it for you on the cross. That Jesus, he goes to the cross because of our sin and because of our suffering and because of our shame and because of our separation. Jesus lovingly goes to that cross where he suffers as we have suffered. He lives as we have lived. He died in the way that we die. But Jesus overcomes death and he goes to the grave where he resurrects, conquering death forever. And then he gives you new life. This little girl is a picture of all of us. That you and me and everyone who has lived spiritually were dead. Separated from God. Dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, dead in our transgressions. And then Jesus shows up. He walks into your house. Walks into the house. Sits on the bed of your heart. And he puts his hand on your hand. And he gently speaks to you. Rise up. Wake up. And he gives you new life. Jesus is powerful. But he's also personal. That he's powerful enough to do it. But he's personal enough to want to. I love how personal Jesus is. Did Jesus actually have to go back to Jairus' house? I mean, he can command creation with a word. He didn't have to go back to Jairus' house. He wanted to go there. Did Jesus have to go into that room? No. He wanted to. Did Jesus have to sit on that bed? No, he wanted to. Did Jesus have to grab her by the hand? No. But he did it anyway. He's powerful enough not to have to do it, but he's personal enough to do it. And that's what I find so beautiful about our Lord Jesus, that he sits on that bed and he looks over her and he says, Talitha kumi, 
Little girl, wake up. Little girl, arise. Little girl. Honey, sweetie, wake up. And she opens her eyes. And the first thing she sees is Jesus. She sees Jesus looking after her and loving her and the twinkle in his eye and the smile on his face. And the first thing this little girl sees when she opens her eyes is Jesus. And friends, if you are in Christ, when you die, you don't really die. You just see Jesus. That when you open your eyes, you'll see Jesus face to face, laughing and smiling and celebrating. Little girl, little boy, wake up because now you're alive. That's what Jesus does. And then he says, make her something to eat. I think it was chicken nuggets and ranch because that's Esther's favorite. (laughs) Because he's showing her, yeah, her disease has been healed and her death has been defeated. And he's personal enough to be able to feed her and to be able to show the parents that he did it. And lastly, he says, don't tell anybody. That's weird. Your little girl just came back for life. How could he not tell anybody? He'd be shouting it from the rooftops. And he says, don't tell anybody. And it's not because people aren't going to find out. I mean, 5,000 people are right outside their door. People are going to know. Like, this girl, she alive. Like, something happened here. Why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Because this is a very special moment for this family. Because he wants to be able to do a miracle just for this family that he's not doing it for his name or fame or to boost his career or to get more people in the crowd. He doesn't need an audience. He doesn't need a spectacle. He doesn't need a circus. He doesn't need a show. He wants to do it just for you. Because Jesus is for everyone, even you. And some of you today, you would identify with this man, that you're religious, you've grown up in church, you've read the Bible before, You've heard about Jesus, but you still don't follow him. You still don't trust him. You still don't believe in him. But today you're hopeless. Today you are desperate. And you need to do anything in your power to be able to get to Jesus, to run to Jesus, because nothing else is going to satisfy. Nothing else is going to heal. Nothing else is going to help. Do whatever you can. Risk everything. Risk your fame. Risk your wealth. Risk your reputation. Risk your notoriety. Don't worry about what other people are going to say about you. Don't worry about what other people are going to look at you for. Don't worry about other people. Instead, you just need to worry about getting to Jesus, because when you get to Jesus, everything changes. And some of you, you'd identify with this woman that you spent years in loneliness and isolation and suffering and shame, and you're filled with grief, and you've tried everything. You've tried drugs and sex and alcohol, education, religion. You've tried men. You've tried women. You've tried everything, but nothing gets better. In fact, it only gets worse, that you're unworthy, unwelcome. You feel unclean, and like this woman, you need to know that Jesus, he cleanses you that your sin has been erased, that your past has been erased, that your shame has been erased, and that you have been declared righteous. And as you fall before Jesus, you come to him just as you are, and Jesus, he changes you. And others of you, you're like this little girl, that you're dead, that you have no hope, that you have no life, and you need to see that Jesus is personal, and that he is walking into your room, walking into your suffering. He is walking into your pain. And that he is personal with you.
and that he speaks over you. Life. And as you meet Jesus, you come alive. The bottom line is this. Jesus is for everyone. Men need Jesus. Women need Jesus. Children need Jesus. Because when we meet Jesus, our lives begin to change. Because that's who Jesus is. And that's why redemption exists. Let's pray. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us for one of our two services at 9.30 or 11.15 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.